1976, Ronald Reagan had a problem. No one seemed to actually want to vote for him. The governor of California and former very bad actor had already launched an unsuccessful bid for the presidency in 1968, where he attempted to take advantage of the fact that no one liked Richard Nixon to launch his own presidential ambitions. Unfortunately, no one seemed to like Ronald Reagan either. Though he had survived an attempt to recall him the same year, the fact that he had been willing to compromise with Democrats on issues like tax and gun control had made him kind of annoying to Republicans, while his approach to welfare and racism, well, was abhorrent to say the least, making him unpalatable to liberals. Reagan hates welfare, and in the 1976 campaign, he has made it a core part of his candidacy. The primary reason that Reagan and conservatives of his ilk hated welfare is, well, that it kinda sorta worked. The introduction of Medicare and Medicaid began providing low-cost healthcare to the elderly and low-income families. Within five years of Lyndon B. Johnson declaring a war on poverty, poverty fell 42%. The legislation introduced during this time helped single mothers, the poor, black people, and communities of color in particular. And you know, that bugged wealthy, racist white people who began to see the communities experience upward mobility. And to them, that was no good. Conservatives had argued that these programs simply encouraged these communities to stay on the government dime, not contributing to the economy, and that the poor, and when most black people are poor, that mostly means black people, simply did not have the drive to work. Ronald Reagan was trying to reform his image from a man who was willing to compromise to a man who was, well, just plain old obstructionist and capitalist and awful. But alas, as Reagan pitched his bid for the Republican nomination against incumbent Gerald Ford, he needed something that was going to get him over the hump. He found it in a woman named Linda Taylor. A Chicago Tribune article detailed the curious case of Linda Taylor, a fraudster, scammer, con artist, kidnapper, and potential murderer. Taylor was going on trial for welfare fraud from the moment Reagan and his campaign realized Taylor existed, the two became twisted and linked. A bizarre marriage of convenience between two people who both valued power and money and were willing to exploit whatever systems they could to get it. Welcome to Whose Grift Is It Anyway? I am your humble grift master and I call this episode the Welfare Queen and the Conservative King. Linda Taylor isn't actually Linda Taylor. If she were alive today, it's doubtful that Linda would be able to or willing to tell you her real first name. Slate.com's Josh Levin, who has done much of the heavy lifting telling Taylor's story, was able to find out that Taylor's actual name was probably, maybe, Martha Miller. But for clarity's sake, I'll just stick to her most popular and well-known alias. 
from what can be gleaned by old census records, Taylor was maybe possibly the result of a mixed race relationship between Joe and Liddy Miller. Such dalliances were super illegal in the 1920s. And despite her mixed race heritage, her family marked her race as white in the 1930 and 1940 U.S. Census. But honestly, no one can be sure that she was even of mixed race at all. Joe Miller might not have been her biological father. Some claim that a black man named coincidentally Marvin White was actually Taylor's father. Being born into a world where she could never be quite sure who she was became an integral part of Taylor's life. By the 1950s, she was either 25 or 26 or 27 and already had four children, all by different fathers. The inability of people to place her race was a gift and a curse. She could pass for black or white whenever it suited her. Two of her sons with darker skin were forced to eat outside while her lighter children could eat in White's only establishments. Linda's living situation changed as rapidly as everything else around her did. Her son, Johnny Harbaugh, recalls the cars they lived in in the different states more than he recalls the actual locations. Taylor wasn't a particularly nice person, nor a particularly good mother, and by the 1960s, she was already well on her way to Griff infamy. It had to have been a painful life for her. Not knowing who she was, suffering in the Jim Crow South, and under a system of white supremacy that colored everything she did for her entire life. But it's also undeniable that Taylor did bad things for bad reasons. She was prone to either giving away her own children or snatching up other people's children, possibly to sell them to other people who wanted children. In the 1970s, she potentially dressed like a nurse and kidnapped Paul Joseph Fronsack, who she then turned around and sold to uh, someone. The case captured the nation, but in spite of hunches and assumptions and thousands of investigators, Taylor was never formally charged with the kidnapping. Also, she probably poisoned and killed the woman. In 1974, Patricia Parks hired Linda Taylor to be a live-in nanny. A year later, Parks died under mysterious circumstances, and a will claiming that she had left her home to Taylor and her children raised the eyebrows of the authorities. She was also named as the beneficiary of several life insurance policies that had been taken out in Parks' name. Patricia's Parks' daughter believes it was Taylor who killed her. Taylor, who informed the police of Parks' death, claimed that Patricia had died of cervical cancer. An autopsy done by the city coroner did not find any such evidence of cancer but did find that Patricia had lethal amounts of barbiturates in her body at the time of her death. Also, she probably also got her kind of sort of makeshift quasi-dad killed, and she probably took a bunch of life insurance policies out on him too. And she may have gotten her side piece to kill her husband, Sherman Ray, who also had several life insurance policies. 
And then said side piece and Linda Taylor built 76-year-old Mildred Markham out of thousands of dollars. All this is context to say that Linda Taylor was a career criminal and, like, not a great human being. She left a path of devastation and destruction in her path everywhere she went. You could do an entire podcast miniseries on Linda Taylor, and Slace Josh Levin did exactly that. But why did the welfare queen stuff stick while the she probably murders people to get life insurance money and steals babies to sell them for profit stuff fall to the side? Take it away, Ronnie boy. Chicago, they found a woman who holds the record. She used 80 names, 30 addresses, 15 telephone numbers to collect food stamps, social security, veterans benefits for four non-existent deceased veterans' husbands, as well as welfare. Her tax-free cash income alone has been running $150,000 a year. To understand how Reagan was able to take this story and catalyze it into the start of our current dystopia, I'm going to have to talk to you about 1970s economics. Yes, I, a man who hates math and only has a few college courses behind me, am going to sit down and try to explain the economic realities of an entire decade. I promise I'll try to make it interesting, but like, try is the key word here, so cut me some slack. Okay, so, in the 1970s, the company was struggling with dual problems. High unemployment and high inflation. And this is the part where some crypto bro shows up and starts talking about the US dollar no longer being pegged to the gold standard. And while that's kind of important, it's not the reason why we're here now. Or at least, not really. I'll, I'll talk about the gold standard thing in another episode. The more important thing here is that it's more of a symptom than a cause of the problem. The United States had been pumping money into the economy through the federal government's anti-poverty programs and had been funding the obscenely expensive and probably even more obscenely unnecessary Vietnam War. Pumping all that money into the economy made the dollar worth less than the gold it was pegged to. Now, that was boring, but the real economic pain didn't happen until 1973. That's when the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, placed an embargo on oil for countries like the United States for what they claimed was the West's support of Israel in the Yom Kippur War. Almost overnight, the price of oil tripled. And to understand the old world, you have to understand that it basically ran on cheap oil. Tripling the cost overnight brought America's economy, already struggling with the effects of inflation, to a cold hard stop. Jobs like manufacturing, agriculture, and shipping all saw a massive reduction in their ability to produce much of anything. This led to layoffs, which in turn led to higher unemployment. In the minds of American corporations, they had no choice but to take steps they had probably long been considering. They began to move jobs offshores to countries with less regulation and less cost of living and began to install fancy new 
computers and automated robots into their factories. You know what? I'll just let Dusty Rhodes tell you what's going on. You don't know what hard times are, daddy. Hard times are when the textile workers around this country are out of work and got four or five kids and can't pay their wages, can't buy their food. Hard times are when the auto workers are out of work and they tell them go home. And hard times are when a man has worked at a job 30 years. 30 years. They give him a watch, kick him in the butt, and say, hey, a computer took your place, daddy. That's hard time. That's hard time. Now, the federal government under Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, and Jimmy Carter all attempted to curb the monster that was stagflation. And, and basically, all of them failed. All that shit that I just explained, the complex machinations of a series of well-meaning ideas plus a global oil conglomerate combining in ways that were both unheard of and unthought of, while mostly well-meaning politicians and also Richard Nixon try their best to combat a problem they don't fully understand. That, my friends, is a bunch of deeply boring shit that only people who are listening to podcasts care about. Someone needed to be blamed. Someone needed to pay. And someone needed to come up with a nice, simple way to crush all these problems. Enter Ronald Reagan. By 1980, Reagan had finally cobbled together enough of an interesting personality to be an actual threat to incumbent President Jimmy Carter. And he seized on that moment to make Linda Taylor and the myth of the welfare queen to be the perfect boogeyman, or perhaps in this case, voodoo queen. Linda Taylor also told people that she was a voodoo practitioner. To sell the country on his biggest and griftiest idea. Now, it's not Reagan who actually named Linda Taylor the Welfare Queen. The first instance of her being referred to as the Welfare Queen appeared in the Chicago Tribune, first by George Bliss. The Chicago Tribune also didn't set out to make Linda Taylor a stand-in for everyone receiving government assistance, at least not at first. Instead, the Chicago Tribune was seeking to point out how overworked, underfunded, understaffed, and frankly, how plain old stupid that the Illinois Department of Public Aid was. Uh, Basically, the Illinois Department of Public Aid was what Dunder Mifflin would be if it was an actual company in the real world. Linda Taylor was a convenient tool to showing the audience the problems of the state agency. She was, in the estimation of the Tribune, and honestly most people, a con artist taking advantage of a broken system. She was but one person in a sea of people mostly trying to just get along. But in the public consciousness, Linda Taylor was all too representative of the fears that middle class whites had about black people. And just to reiterate, we don't even know if Taylor was actually black. 
In those trying, exhausting economic times, much of the burden for the downturn that had begun the rapid transformation of the American economy was placed on a long-held fear held by working-class whites, that by promoting equality, the blacks, who they had been told were lazier and less worthy just by birthright, had at long last begun to reach their final form. Now they were forcing all the white people to work in the fields while they sat around in the big house drinking lemonades. So Ronald Reagan slid into the DMs of these scared people and sold them a solution that seemed incredible on its face. Elect me and I'll make America great again. Huh, wonder where the orange guy got it from. Okay, uh, sorry everyone, but to explain this more, I'm going to have to go into the weeds of economic policy again. Uh, I'll promise I'll do something fun soon. I'll fucking do a dance or fucking make up a song. Just, just stick with me here, okay? <sighs> okay, so to explain Reaganomics, I have to first start with Arthur Laffer. Arthur Laffer is a conservative economist and grifter whose economic policies have contributed to the desolation of the world. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. Okay, he's not merely that. Laffer has a long history of being involved in conservative politics, and by 1974, he had wormed his way into rubbing elbows with esteemed members of the Nixon Ford administration. Ugh. Donald Rumsfeld and ugh, Dick Cheney. According to the magazine National Affairs, Laffer, who was arguing against Gerald Ford's tax increases, used a napkin to illustrate what would later become known as the Laffer Curve. According to Laffer, and forgive me if I'm making this sound stupid, I'm not trying to make it sound stupid, it just is stupid, is that there is a tax rate somewhere between 0% and 100% where you can maximize government tax revenue. Yep. This is his bold idea, that there is a number between 0 and 100 that exists that is a magic bullet to maximize tax revenue. But that's not all, folks. <laughs> Laffer also argues that on this curve, which looks like an upside down U, you can increase taxes, which naturally increases government revenue. But if you increase taxes too much, then tax revenue decreases. Yes, if you add too much taxes, you will not get enough taxes and why is this? Because, Laffer argues, if you increase the taxes too much, that leads to a decrease in productivity from workers who will just stay at home and kick up their feet, living fat off the government dime instead of working. So the way you encourage economic growth is by cutting taxes, particularly on the wealthy and on corporations, to this magic number somewhere between 0 and 100. Those entities will then take the money they've saved in tax revenue and reinvest it downstream to the working class, thereby fueling growth and keeping the economy humming. 
according to National Affairs, even evil Dick Cheney thought this was a dumb idea at the time. But by 1981, Laffer finds a person willing to listen, Ronald Reagan. Reagan gets elected in 1980 in what is functionally a landslide. He has what amounts to a mandate from the electorate. Reagan is also, and we can't ignore this, a rich, wealthy white man who, in one of his books, complains about paying too much in taxes. Laffer finds in Reagan a sympathetic ear at a time when Reagan can functionally do no wrong as long as the economy gets marginally better. When critics point out the flaws in the plan for Reaganomics, such as 1 plus 1 equals 2, but 1 minus 1 equals 0, and, I, and if I have 1, I have no incentive to invest it to create 2, Reagan unveils part 2 of his strategy, clamping down on the welfare queen. Reagan says that the problem is that government has gotten too big and that its entitlement programs have caused laziness and are dominated by fraud. Each time he speaks about the welfare queen, including during radio addresses and the State of the Union, the number of identities, husbands, social security numbers, and money she has swindled increases. At one point, he says that Linda Taylor had received over $1 million in welfare money a number that was barely fact-checked at the time and, according to Josh Levin, exists nowhere in print where there are stories about Taylor's exploits. What Reagan doesn't tell an audience of Americans desperate for a scapegoat? Linda Taylor has already been tried, convicted, and released from prison. All told, the Chicago criminal justice system can only prove that she's stolen about $8,000 in assistance, and that she's done so through all sorts of programs. Also missing from his speeches about the scourge of welfare are any references to the kidnapping of children or the investigations into people who died under mysterious circumstances that just so happened to lead to financial windfalls for Taylor. Nevertheless, Reagan uses the story of Taylor and the general anger and anxiety over entitlements to enact a swath of spending and tax cuts. He signs the Economic Recovery Tax Act of 1981. For normal people, he slashes taxes from 14% to 11%. For the top marginal tax bracket, he slashes taxes by 20%, from 71% to 50%. By 1986, Reagan has cut the tax rate again for the top marginal tax bracket to just 28%. Any budgetary shortfalls are supposed to be made up by cuts to entitlement programs. In 1981 and 1982, Reagan makes cuts to entitlements like student loans and job training for the poor by $22 billion. The budget to the Department of Health and Human Services was cut by 25%. Medicaid expenditures were slashed by 18%, as was funding for maternal and child health care. A million children lose reduced-price school lunches. 600,000 lose Medicaid. A million lost their access to food stamps. And only a third of eligible mothers could be served by WIC. 
along with 500,000 people losing eligibility for aid to families and dependent children, which was the precursor to temporary assistance for needy families. When the HIV and AIDS crises hit, the ability for the government to respond, if Reagan wanted to respond at all, which he didn't, had been kneecapped by massive cuts to health care. Of course, Reagan didn't just make cuts. Reagan massively increased government spending on the military by 43%. And over on Wall Street, large corporations, bolstered by Reagan's tax cuts, began to think to themselves, what if we just enrich our shareholders and ourselves instead of reinvesting our profits into making stuff and paying people? Reagan framed these cuts as necessary to tame the out-of-control inflation of the 1970s, and inflation did fall during his term. However, that was due in part to the Fed aggressively increasing interest rates to slow down consumer spending. The other part of decreasing inflation? The Reagan administration borrowed billions of dollars from other countries to make up for the budgetary shortfalls created by their own policies. The national debt nearly tripled by the time Reagan left office to $2.1 trillion. The U.S. had gone from being the biggest creditor in the world to being its biggest debtor. Meanwhile, the insidious myth of the welfare queen bled into every corner of politics, even amongst Democrats. Bill Clinton, who I'm really starting to think was essentially just a third and fourth term for Ronald Reagan, but we'll get into that in another podcast, ran on the platform he would end welfare as we know it. He also would slash entitlement spending and add a strong work requirements for TAMP. Democrats shrank back from the ideals of the New Deal and the Great Society, instead embracing conservative orthodoxy over how a healthy public safety net did nothing but breed laziness amongst U.S. citizens and increasingly looked at Wall Street as a measure of the economy instead of, you know, literally anything else. Even Barack Obama couldn't help but talk about Ronald Reagan in revered, esteemed terms when trying to denigrate opponents like John McCain and Mitt Romney. In essence, Reagan milked the story of the welfare queen for all it was worth. Meanwhile, Linda Taylor continued to grift and destroy lives until her death in 2002. She amassed, well, not a nice life for herself, but certainly one where she was continually able to get away with grifting for the bulk of it. Taylor skated through largely because no one could ever quite prove all the crimes she committed. There were too many strings to pull, too many aliases to track, and frankly, too much emphasis placed on her fancy furs and her crazy wigs and her big Cadillacs. Though she was only in the public consciousness for a relatively brief window, the multiple children and the allegedly fantastic lifestyle of Taylor permeated all of American culture in ways that are still being felt today. Even amongst black people and black men especially, the pernicious myth of the welfare queen refuses to die. 
every black person has an uncle who swears up and down that they know a black woman who was just having kids to scam the government or definitely knows a person who was only on food stamps so they could sell them for a profit. We ridicule the poor and needy for having cell phones, which in today's society is a is a basic necessity to be able to do pretty much anything. Being poor is now seen by most people as a moral failing. If you didn't want to be poor, you would work harder, the story goes. Now stop buying Jordans at Starbucks and go get a job. I'm not saying it started with Linda Taylor. The poor have always been ridiculed and treated as lesser. But when Tucker Carlson shows up like a ghost in your Twitter feed, warning your scared parents about black people moving into their neighborhoods, one of the images they fear is an image of Linda Taylor. It's a damn shame that they fear her for all the wrong reasons. Did you know that Ronald Reagan fired all the air traffic controllers and then a cabal of his hideous ghouls basically forced Washington DC to name the airport after him? In the aftermath of his presidency, when people were finally beginning to reckon with the fact that he wasn't all he was cracked up to be, Reagan, his family, and his supporters went on a bit of a branding excursion. The Reagan Legacy Project was founded in 1997 by Grover Norquist, and one of his first big coups was getting Reagan's name on DC's airport. In fact, Republicans threatened to cut the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority's funding if they didn't name the metro station after him. His name is on schools, medical facilities, transport hubs, and military buildings. He cut funding to all of those things except the military. In the harsh light of the Trump presidency, Reagan was constantly being talked up as the last good Republican. In as much as there's ever been a good conservative, Reagan is almost certainly not one. He had no principles in the ones he pretended to have. Smaller government, fiscal responsibility, focus on the family, say no to drugs, yada yada yada, have largely proven to be either blatant hypocrisy or completely ineffective. The truth is that Reagan and the men who would come after him simply wanted to turn back the clock to a simpler time when white men were far more powerful. The New Deal, the Civil Rights Act of 1968, Affirmative Action, Roe v. Wade, the Great Society, all these things sought to improve the lives of all Americans and all these things sought to level the playing field after centuries of patriarchy and white supremacy. Reagan took a sledgehammer to all of it and enriched his closest friends and convinced Americans that the advances that they had made had actually made us weak. Ronald Reagan and Linda Taylor needed each other. Ronald Reagan needed a caricature to blame and Linda Taylor needed an easy mark to pay attention to her least offensive crimes so she could get away with the big one. They were really made for each other. It's a shame that their infernal marriage damaged so many lives for so many years in ways that are both big and small.
So, uh, yeah, thanks for listening to this second episode of the show. You can find me over at whosegrift at kind.social. Uh, a huge thanks to uh, Josh Levin of Slate.com for doing most of the work to find out who Linda Taylor is. Uh, bigger thank you to uh, the Ask an Economist Reddit, who there's a lot of smart people over there who make very complex ideas uh, palatable. And I dig that. So, uh, yeah. Uh, if you like the show, you can also leave a five-star review on Apple, on Google, on whatever podcasting app you use. And until next time, we'll see you next time. Okay, bye!